A few weeks ago in our study of um, 1 Corinthians, we've been working through the book, um, we read these words. This is from chapter 10, verses 16 and 17, says this. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Those comments that Paul makes there, they come in the midst of his instruction to the church, you'll remember, I'm sure, regarding food that had been offered to idols, a practice that was common in the pagan city of Corinth. And as Paul connects that issue with our own tradition of participating in the Lord's Supper, he makes three points that I want to remind you of this morning very briefly before we look at today's passage. First, he says that the Lord's Supper is a fellowship with Christ. Participation in the Lord's Supper is not a casual event. It's it's not a snack to tide you over till lunch. In fact, just like how the Old Testament worship was regulated, and, and if it was done inappropriately, there would be dire consequences, so also worship at the Lord's table should be taken very seriously. The end of chapter 11 gets at that. So we put it like this, the Lord's Supper is a covenant meal. When we come and eat, we are renewing our covenant vows. We are proclaiming Christ's death until he comes. We are proclaiming his payment for our sin. The Lord's Supper is only for believers. And of them, only for those who are seeking to live in repentance. Second, the Lord's Supper generates, and the word that Paul uses there in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 10 is koinonia, a participation or fellowship or communion with other celebrants, with other church members. And the idea is the people in the room who also have trusted in Christ. The way Paul describes the supper highlights the, the communal nature or character of the meal, does it not? He says, we give thanks for the cup. We break bread together proclaiming Christ's death. We know that while it is the Holy Spirit who brings us together as one, it's the communion meal that affirms and reinforces our unity in bringing us together in Christ. We can even say that as Christians, this eating and drinking is a part of our sanctification. It's a part of our being conformed to the image of Christ as we live in repentance. And then the third point I want us to be reminded of this morning is the emphasis that the Lord's Supper places on the body and blood of Christ, which shows us the seriousness of this covenant allegiance to God. See, Christ stood as our substitute. His blood was shed because we couldn't keep the law. Or or technically speaking, those of us who are Gentiles, we were outside of the law. We were outside of the covenant. We stood condemned in sin without hope and without God. But in Christ, he opened up for us the way of salvation and adopted us into his own family. And so this fellowship, this partnership, this communion in the blood of Christ, it, it parallels the words of, of institution that I read every week, right? This cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
Jesus, in his death, created a new covenant between God and his chosen people. And breaching this covenant, breaking this covenant, can only have disastrous consequences. And as I said, we can see some of those consequences at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. But when we participate in the Lord's Supper by faith in the finished work of Christ, we're able to see this element of our worship as a fellowship with Christ and with His church in which Christ strengthens us and nourishes us by faith. So now we come to really what is the most comprehensive teaching on the Lord's Supper in the Bible. Um, so let's read the rest of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and then we're going to pray that the Lord will help us to, to hear and understand what he is saying to us in these words. So 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 17, says this. The Apostle Paul writes, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together it is not for the better but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or you, do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Let's just stop and pray. Father, I do pray that you would help us, uh, give us ears to hear, help us to understand what you are speaking, what you are saying to us in your word here, Lord. I pray that I would decrease and that Christ would increase, that our minds would be set on the things of God. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we work our way through these verses, um, I actually plan to break this, the rest of this chapter up over the next couple of weeks, probably into three sections. And if, but if I were titling the entire section, all of these verses that I just read, um, I would probably title it something like Conduct at the Supper. Because, even though I'm not great at sermon titles, um, because in keeping with, with Paul's theme as he works through this, he's correcting the Corinthians' conduct over and over and over again. And this is exactly the issue that he's addressing here, their conduct at the supper. 
And if I were breaking this into three sections, which I'm probably going to do, because it, it's kind of a, there's a natural flow to the sections here. If I were doing that, I would, I would make an outline that looked something like this. So verses 17 to 22 that we're going to look at this morning reveal the divisions. So divisions revealed. Verses 23 to 26 is the actual tradition that Paul explains, the tradition received from Christ. And then verses 27 through the rest of the chapter are some abuses that are corrected. And so that's most likely the outline that we will be working through over the next couple of weeks. But you may have noticed, if you saw in the bulletin, that I didn't, I didn't title today's sermon uh, Divisions Revealed. I, I titled it When You Come Together. And the reason for this is that there is also a sub-point to these verses that revolve around that phrase, revolve around the phrase, when you come together. And we're going to be looking at that sub-point as the second half of this morning's sermon. So, if you're with me here, there's kind of going to be two sermons put together this morning. I think it'll work. You can tell me after if it did or not. But I do want to be clear that the sub-point is not the main point. Um, the main point, why Paul's writing here, is to address the divisions in the church when they come to the table. But as he's doing this, we're also able to see the practice of the church and how often they come to the table, which he doesn't condemn. We'll come back to that in a little bit because we need to start with what the main point of the text is, which is these divisions that Paul is revealing, especially when we look this morning at verses 17 to 22. Now remember, so far in this letter, as we have been spending, uh, I think, about a year working through 1 Corinthians, so far Paul has been addressing the the day-to-day body life in the church. He's been addressing the relationships that have developed both between church members and in some cases between church members and those who are outside the church. But now he begins a new section. Here in this passage, he begins a new section where he will deal with a series of issues that surround their assembled worship when they come together. These are all issues that we need to look at and pay careful attention to, and Paul begins with the Lord's Supper. Now, from the earliest days of the church, we can see that the focus of church leadership, whether that was the apostles early on, or elders as the church develops through the New Testament, but we can see that the focus of that leadership is on the ministry of the Word. So in Acts chapter 6, the apostles explain to the the congregation in Jerusalem in verse 2, it is not right that we should give up the preaching of the Word of God to serve tables. And then in verse 4 they say, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And then if you know that passage, they appoint others to meet the physical needs of the people. And then even in the opening of of this book, in 1 Corinthians, Paul makes statements such as this. He says, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And then he says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to the... To those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
And a little bit later, he says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come to you proclaiming, proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstrations of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The preaching of God's Word, the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ, is the mission of the church, and it's the duty of preachers. This is why, for example, the pulpit is central and really ought to be the first thing that you see when you walk into the sanctuary. This was a change that the reformers made during the Reformation when they moved the table from the central focus to the pulpit. It's not about the guy behind it, let me tell you that for sure. It's not even about the piece of furniture, as beautiful as this one is. It's about the Word of God being proclaimed. The Word of God must be the focus. Now, as I said, we already saw the significance uh, in chapter 10, and I mentioned this a minute ago, the significance of the supper as a participation, a, a fellowship, a communion with Christ. But I also want to point out something else here in chapter 11. Paul doesn't really address the theology of the supper. He's already done that. It is a participation. It is a koinonia. Here, he is simply pointing out and addressing the problem, which is this. When they come together to eat and drink, there are divisions among them. It's the same problem he's been addressing all along through the letter. The Corinthian church is filled with factions and divisions. And in this case, when they come to the table, they're divided over what we could call socioeconomic lines. And because of this division, Paul begins this instruction with a sharp rebuke. Let me read verses 17 to 22 again. He says, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Paul begins and ends that whole section by stating that, that he cannot commend the Corinthians on their attitude and their behavior at the Lord's Supper. Now, it's an interesting contrast because earlier he had commended them. In fact, at the beginning of the chapter, up in verse 2, he says this, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. As we saw when we looked at that passage, um, he's expressed his approval of the genuine believers there in Corinth for holding on to and even passing on the gospel. Like the apostles of Acts chapter 6, they were concerned with the word and prayer. But these are not the only, uh, the word and prayer are not the only ordinary means of grace. And so he can't approve of their handling of the Lord's Supper. 
In fact, when they come together, it's not for the sake of unity, but rather for division. So this is what we see in verses 17 and 18. Really, when they come together, they come together for division. Since this meal is supposed to signify their covenant allegiance to their Lord and King, their covenant head, and to His people, the divisions here, the divisions when they come to the Lord's Supper, it completely undermine and even make a mockery of the very purpose of the Lord's Supper. Consider, consider Jesus' teaching in the upper room at the same supper where he instituted this meal. In, in fact, turn over to John chapter 13 for a second. We were here, it seems like it was recently, but I think it was a few years ago. John chapter 13 This is the same meal where Jesus gives them instructions on the Lord's Supper that Paul is referring to. But listen to what happens at the beginning of this. Verses 1 to 5, John 13, 1 through 5 says this. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now jump down to verse 31 of that same chapter. John 13, 31 says this, when he, that is Judas Iscariot, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's possible. It's possible that his towel was still wet when he said those words. In fact, it's probable, right? They had felt him wash their feet. And then he gives them this command. Consider Jesus' selfless love and service at that first supper, or what we call that last supper, when he instituted communion. Consider Peter, who was there and had his feet washed, in fact, wanted him to have him wash his whole body. He didn't understand what was going on. But Peter, later, when he understands, he will write this in his first letter. In 1 Peter uh, chapter 4, verse 8, he says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. And Peter knew this better than anybody. Consider John. Also at that last supper, 
As he explains in, in his letter, 1 John chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, he says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Consider Paul, who wasn't there that day, yet his words... Really, what he says to the Galatians should be echoing in the ears of the Corinthians as he writes, Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And this kind of, this kind of loving self-sacrifice that, that Jesus demonstrated and, and the apostles commanded, it was picked up by the earliest church. Listen to how Acts chapter 2, verses 41 to 47, describes church life at the very beginning. So those who received his word, this is Peter's preaching, were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And yet, the divisions that Paul is hearing about, that's so contrary What's going on in in Corinth is contrary to that description in Acts chapter 2, isn't it? And yet it fits the pattern of the Corinthians' behavior regarding all kinds of issues that we've talked about even in the first 11 chapters so far. And so why would it be any different when they came together for the Lord's Supper? And this division that they have when they come together, it only leads to disorder in the church. They come together for division, and they also come together for disorder. Jump down to the end of this passage in 21 and 22. So 1 Kings 11, 21 says this. What? When you, uh, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. One of the debates... Um, from that Acts chapter 2 passage that I just read and a few other places, one of the debates is the, the meaning of the term breaking bread. And so Acts 2.42 says this, and they devoted themselves, this is what the early church was doing, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And so the debate is, is the breaking of bread there, is that the Lord's Supper or is it a meal? Well, it's It's both. They were eating a meal together and participating in the Lord's Supper as part of the meal. Notice Paul's argument here. He says this, when they came together to eat and drink, when they came together to break bread, this supper, this supper in Corinth, had turned into a a disordered, drunken spectacle. And I should point out right here that both Peter 
and Jude tell us that false teachers used what Jude calls of this breaking bread, this meal, he calls it a love feast. And, and false teachers are using this love feast, this meal, to sneak in among the saints. Just listen to how Jude describes this in his letter. So Jude verses 12 and 13 says this. Catch this language. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up from uh, the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. That, that is wild, dark, disturbing language, and it should push us to pay careful attention to the Lord's Supper. Peter, he similarly says in his second letter, he says this, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. Their blots and blemishes revealing in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Can you see the importance of taking the Lord's Supper seriously? People like those two descriptions in Jude and Peter were involved in this feast, sneaking in among the saints. What Paul is describing in these couple of verses um, here in chapter 11 is, is what the Greeks and the Romans did when, when they would feast to their gods. And it always led to immorality. So some of the wealthier Corinthians, already beset with, with factions and divisions in their hearts and toward one another, they bring disorder to the table by not sharing with those who had little. They would eat in front of them. They would get drunk, literally, on the communion wine. And I'm not sure which is worse. I'm not sure if it's worse that they were overindulging, which is sinful, or that they were essentially preventing the poor from coming to the table, which, remember, is an ordinance of Christ. Jesus said to do this. Listen to how Matthew Henry describes this in his commentary. He says this, he said, what was appointed to feed the soul was employed to feed their lusts and, and passions. What should have been a bond of mutual amity and affection was made an instrument of discord and disunion. They were deprived of the food prepared for them, and the rich turned a feast of charity into a debauch. This was a scandalous irregularity. So let me ask you, does what is done at the Lord's table... Does it proclaim his death? Or does it advertise our own selfishness? Does what is done at the Lord's table proclaim his death? Or does it advertise our own selfishness? These things are why guarding the purity of the table is so important. These things are why guarding the purity of the witness of the church is so important. These things are why guarding the purity of our own lives and hearts are so important. Instead of, instead of what we see in these verses, we ought to be building one another up in love. 
Because of this, when they come together, it is not for the Lord's Supper, Paul says of them. And he lays the blame on the church for tolerating all of this by saying that their conduct has destroyed the purpose and the use of the supper in their church. Look at verse 20. He said this. He said, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. They would have been better off staying away from the table at all because what they were doing uh, was in direct contradiction to the purpose of the supper. And it displayed, really, the contempt in their hearts that they had toward others in the church. They were intent on keeping those whom they viewed as lower class. They were intent on keeping them in their place. And this was worthy of a sharp rebuke. Do you know why? Because because every saint stands on equal footing at the cross of Christ. He paid the same price for the soul of the wealthy Christian as he did for the poor Christian. That that was his own body, right? Again, Matthew Henry said this, It is a heinous evil and severely to be censured for Christians to treat their fellow Christians with contempt and insolence, but especially at the Lord's table. This is doing what they can to pour contempt on divine ordinances. And we should look carefully to it that nothing in our behavior at the Lord's table has the appearance of contemning so sacred an institution. We need to be checking our own hearts when we come. I hope that you're seeing, even just in these few verses, how seriously the Scriptures take the Lord's Supper. And as is often the case, though, there is some hope here. God is able to sinlessly use man's evil, um, in this case, these evil factions and divisions. He uses it for man's good and for his own glory. Because one thing that the the Corinthians communion meal does is it reveals the genuineness of their faith. Look at verse 19. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So remember, there's a clear division in Corinth at the table. There's a clear division between the rich and the poor. Or we could say it this way. There's a clear division at the table between the drunk and the hungry. Right? What what if when we look at this and when we consider those words... What if we mean something a little bit different from what the world means when they hear those terms? Consider the words of Jesus Christ. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. If you're coming to the table... Or, or in our case, our elders serve the church and deacons serve the church, and so the, the plate is coming to you. And you just are looking at it for satisfaction. This will tide me over till dinner. I can tell you because I've eaten of that bread and drank of the cup many times, that's not going to work. It's, it's a little small for that. But if you are coming to the table hungering and thirsting for righteousness, 
for the righteousness of Christ, if you're hearing his word proclaimed, the promises of Christ proclaimed, and you are coming to the table hungering and thirsting for his righteousness, you will be satisfied. See, the Lord's Supper isn't about social standing at all. Although it has been used for that by many over the centuries, the Lord's Supper is all about the work of Christ. And our worship, including when we come to the table, it, it ought to reflect as, as Ephesians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Communion is for those who seek to live just like that. Who seek to live just like that. It's for believers who seek to live in repentance because we, we so often fail to live like that, don't we? We can even say that as Christians, this eating and drinking is a part of our sanctification. It's a part of our being conformed to the image of Christ because we have to stop and we have to confess our sins. We have to remember that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. This brings us to the question of frequency. How often ought we eat the bread and drink the cup and so proclaim his death until he comes? I've already mentioned this. I've referred back to Acts several times. But when we look there, uh, the record of the earliest church, we see that the observance of the Lord's Supper was part of the church's regular worship. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. This was their regular pattern. And it was not just simply having dinner together, although they did do that. They shared with any who had need. In fact, Acts chapter 2, verse 46, that same passage, said that they broke bread day by day, every day, with glad and generous hearts. And we can see this practice spread as the gospel continues to spread. So that later in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, we see that they have set apart the Lord's day for this worship as we read this. Acts 20, verse 7 says this. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul uh, talked with them, intending to depart the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Don't worry. That took place in Troas, which is way up on the coast of Turkey. So by this point, Christians were gathering on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, for the preaching of God's Word and to celebrate the Lord's Supper for the breaking of bread. And so when we come back to 1 Corinthians, we can see that, that not only has this, this practice spread to Corinth in Greece, but it's also continued, they've also continued to, to break bread on the Lord's Day, every Lord's Day. Five times in this passage, uh, Paul repeats the phrase, when you come together, when you come together. 
And that word or that, that phrase come together, it's going to be used several times in the New Testament, and it's, or a form of it, is a technical term for the assembly of the church. And we can see the roots of this concept all the way back in Acts chapter 2, verse 44, which says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Paul isn't saying here in 1 Corinthians, this happens on Communion Sunday. Rather, he is saying, when the church assembles for worship, these injustices are happening. Not on the first Sunday of the month these things are happening, or quarterly, or once a year. He's saying, when you assemble for worship, this injustice is happening. And I believe it, because there are factions in every area of your life. So now let's think about the saints who have gone before us. Just briefly, kind of the, the historical practice of the church. Um, there's a handbook uh, called the Didache. It was one of the earliest Christian writings apart from the New Testament, or after the time of the New Testament that we have. And it acts as kind of a summary of the standards for Christian behavior in the early church. And it says this about the Lord's Supper. Uh, it's actually Article 14. It says... And when coming together on the Lord's own day, break bread and give thanks after confessing your transgressions. In that matter, your sacrifice will be pure. And do not let anyone coming with a quarrel against a brother join you until they get reconciled in order that your sacrifice is not impure. For this has been spoken of by the Lord. In every place and every time, offer me a pure sacrifice. For I am a great king, says the Lord, and my name is wonderful among the nations." Additionally, Justin Martyr, who was a Christian apologist from the second century, he notes that during worship, the writings of the apostles and the prophets were read for as long as time permits. And that was followed by prayer. And then finally, the Lord's Supper is observed, and all of those things in his writings are described as a regular elements of weekly worship in the church. Well, sometimes when we think of weekly communion, people think, it looks too much like the Roman Catholic Church. But that's not the case, actually. Um, during the Middle Ages, for a variety of reasons, not the least of which the fact that the, the church began to wander further and further from the truth, the supper began to be observed less frequently. So that in the year 1215, usually I give you a history lesson at the beginning of the sermon, now it's coming in the, near the end. But in the year 1215, at the Fourth Lateran Council, the church, the Catholic Church, mandated that the supper had to be observed at least once a year because they had essentially stopped doing it at all. And so we could say that all of the evidence shows, both during the New Testament era and in the first few centuries of the church, that Christians practiced communion at least weekly. It was under the medieval-era Roman Catholic Church when they were walking away from the truth of God's Word and the authority of God's Word. It was under that era that an infrequent communion developed. In other words, the further Christians were from holding on to the truth of God's Word, the less frequent they ate of the bread and drank of the cup. This is why John Calvin writes in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, plainly this custom, which enjoins us to take communion once a year, is a veritable invention of the devil, whoever was instrumental in introducing it. It should be done far differently. 
The Lord's table should have been spread at least once a week for the assembly of Christians and the promises declared in it should feed us spiritually. None is indeed to be forcibly compelled, but all are to be urged and aroused. And also the inertia of indolent people is to be rebuked. All, like hungry men, should flock to such a bounteous repast. We could continue to make a case for a frequent communion from many during the Reformation era, including the confessions. But let me just ask this. Why would we not want to receive as often as possible these gracious benefits offered to us by the Lord? Why would we not want to live repentantly and be reminded of His goodness and His promises toward us? Let me, let me just close this morning. As we consider that question, let me just close this morning by answering four common objections to a frequent communion. These are common objections. And you have been gracious. We've been doing this for two years now. Um, and I, I don't hear complaining. Maybe I don't hear it. But let me just give you four common objections. First, it is true that there is no specific command in Scripture to eat and drink of the supper every time we come together. Just like there is no command to sing weekly or to do many of the other things that we do weekly, like take an offering, for example. We do these things. We, we preach and we teach and we read Scripture and we pray and we sing and we worship through our offerings and tithes because we are following the patterns and habits of the earliest churches in the New Testament, which includes the observance of the Lord's Supper. Second, some object, as I just said, some object because it seems like a Roman Catholic practice. I've already pointed out that that hasn't always been the case but do you understand that the Roman Catholic Church also reads Scripture every time they come together? Just because they, or, or any other wrong-headed church, just because they do something doesn't mean it's a bad thing. It might just simply be that the theology behind it is wrong, which in that case it is. Third, we believe, or some believe, I should say, that a weekly communion will get in the way of the preaching of God's Word. Well, I think that in our case, we have proven that, that this will not be the case over the last couple of years. But we also need to remember, and I really like this phrase. I, this isn't new to, or unique to me. Somebody came up with this. I don't even know who. We need to remember that the supper is a seal of the covenant of grace. It is a seal of the promises of the gospel. He feeds us with his word, and when we eat and drink, knowing, we eat and drink knowing that all of the promises of God find their yes in Christ, who gave his life up for us. And then the final objection, and this is probably the most common, is that a frequent observation of the Lord's Supper, it could tend to make it less meaningful and significant or less special. I have two answers for this one. First, the Lord's Supper is a God-ordained ordinary means of grace. It's something that the Lord himself has provided for our spiritual nourishment. The same goes for preaching. The same goes for prayer. And so are we, answer this question yourselves, are we in danger of those things, 
the preaching of God's word, or even our prayers, are we in danger of them becoming less meaningful and less significant? Of course we are. We are prone to wander. We are prone to scroll social media in the middle of a sermon. We're prone to start thinking about lunch during those long pastoral prayers. We're prone to start wondering which, which Megan is pregnant. But that doesn't mean that we should do them less frequently. It means that we should repent and take every thought captive. And then finally, the Lord's Supper only becomes less meaningful and significant when we fail to truly understand its meaning and significance. We live in a world that is spiritually starving. A world that is constantly tempting us to to taste and see if, if these other things are good. We live with hearts that are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. And we need to frequently be reminded that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures, and that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We need to be reminded of that frequently. I don't know about you, but by about 3 o'clock this afternoon, I'm going to need to be reminded of that again. I'm going to need to be reminded of that tomorrow morning when I wake up. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. And that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. When we come to the table, which we're going to do now, we should come and rejoice We should come and give thanks for the finished work of Christ. We should come and eat and drink and be reminded of the goodness. We should taste and see that the Lord is good. That blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray together. Lord, we don't presume to come to your table um, on our own righteousness. But because of your mercy. We're not worthy to gather up crumbs from your table, Lord. But you are merciful and gracious. And so, Lord, as we eat and drink this morning, Lord, I pray that you would, that you would nourish us, that you would remind us that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and he rose again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Lord, I pray that you would remind us that Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins. He has taken it from us. He has taken the penalty upon himself and removed it as far as the east is from the west. Remind us, Lord, that we are yours, that we are your people, that you are our God. Remind us that we are not alone, but that we have been assembled as a a church, that we have one another that we carry one another, that we love one another because you have first loved us. Lord, in the greatest demonstration of your love, we see in the table Christ's body and blood for our sins. 
And so we eat this morning and we drink this morning proclaiming Christ's death with hearts of thankfulness and rejoicing. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.